This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. The story of a slave and the case for reparations. The white owner's uh, mother came in, saw this. She um, slapped um, Leah so hard, nearly knocked her out the chair. And then she proceeded to um, beat her for forgetting um, that the left breast was only reserved for her white baby. Coming up in this episode of Colors. How much progress have we made on race relations since George Floyd's death? I am a Latina living in Dallas, Texas. I'm white. I'm from Des Moines, Iowa, and I live in Washington, D.C. I'm black. I'm from Southwest Michigan. I'm an Indian Jamaican living in the United States for the last 25 years. I'm a black man from Inglewood, California. The voices of our listeners. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. And this is Colors. Last week was our 25th show, and we've been doing these programs since June. Over the course of the time that we've been doing the program, a lot of people have sent us their own personal reflections about race in America. A lot of it started from the George Floyd situation. There are other situations uh, that sort of looked at the relationships between the races. There's politics, there, there are world events, there's health events. There have been all sorts of reflections from people that have come in during the course of uh, this process. And I thought it would be good to take a look at what we've done now. And one of the things that I've heard from a number of people about is they don't feel that a lot is happening right now in terms of improving the race relations situation. And a part of it has to do with the fact that they're just so many things happening. COVID-19, an election, uh, the transition, all of the drama over when the next president will be seated. And so people have really not been able to to measure any progress in race. Yeah. And when you add to that, the fact that we're, you know, in the midst of the holidays, that distracts people as well. That's a very interesting observation. So let's get started with this. What we're going to do is we're going to hear from several people who sent us these reflections, and then we're going to talk to one of those people. My name is Jesslyn. I'm a multiracial woman raised primarily by white people. I live in Oakland, California, and the killing of George Floyd was heartbreaking and also infuriating, not only because it's a gross abuse of power and violence again, but because our community members have been surviving and grieving and witnessing and calling out this injustice for literally hundreds of years. 
My name is Lars Sindis. I'm an Indian Jamaican living in the United States for the last 25 years. I am a naturalized American citizen. The issue of race has been at the forefront of my existence from whence, as far as I can remember. And it cuts across all bounds. It's not just a white thing. It's a global thing. Even in Jamaica, there are levels of racism in our society, even though you may think that Jamaica is 98% non-white. The problems of racism, the implications of racism exist in our society there. But it's not as bad as here in the United States, where it is overt, it is blatant, it's in your face. It's pretty much everywhere you go. My name is Dimitra Ganyas, and I live in Connecticut. I am a first-generation American Greek. For both of my parents, who immigrated to the U.S. when they were young, America was the promised land. I grew up hearing and watching how hard work and education paved the way to the American dream. They still do. But as an adult and a mother, I know we don't all start on equal footing. There's a missing piece to the equation that people of color have to overcome. I certainly don't have the answer as to the solution, but I do believe it starts with conversation, the type of real, open, vulnerable dialogue that has bubbled to the surface of this country over the last several months. Hi, I'm Thomas Warren. I'm a black man from Inglewood, California. And my first thought of seeing George Floyd die on that video was anger and that his life didn't matter enough to those four officers to want to spare it so he could see his day in court, which led to my second feeling of despair and just wanting to shake people and say that black folks don't want you to feel sorry for us. We just want some empathy and understanding that we want our lives to matter enough to be protected. And I'm hoping we can get there one day. You're listening to Colors. And that's where we go for our first look back, is with Thomas Warren, a senior assignment editor for the NFL Network, and he lives in Los Angeles. And by the way, Thomas used to work with us here at WTOP in Washington, D.C. before leaving for the West Coast, which is home. Thomas, thank you for agreeing to do this. Thank you, JJ. First question, seen any difference since the George Floyd murder back in the summer in terms of race relations in the U.S.? I would like to say that things have have changed, and I guess to a certain degree they have. Um, I think we saw that with the election um, in November, the presidential election. I think that was, I don't want to call it a seminal moment, but a moment where I think all of the groundswell from the summer and the protests and folks using their voices in different ways, whether in the streets or through social media, um, or in conversations with friends and family, I think the election was the, the piece that I think people said, all right, well, this is the, when we talk about change and substantial change and meaningful change and something that's going to have a drastic shift in the way the country's going, I think the election was the, the moment where it was a culmination of folks saying, well, this is where I can put my stamp on this change that I want to see, that I'm going to vote out this person who in the highest office in the land has been a, a xenophobe, a homophobe, a racist, uh, you, you name it. So I think in that essence, I think that has actually been um, seeing the change in the, in the election, whether you, uh, I think, are wholeheartedly behind Joe Biden or not. I think it was the idea that to allow Trump to be reelected was going to be a, a continuation of everything that had led to the summer uh, of George Floyd and all the issues 
um, that I think when he was murdered and people saw that on video, finally took down the veil of folks not being able to, to say, oh, well, I didn't know anymore. I think the continuation of Trump being in office would have given people, I think, the, the, the backing that, well, I don't have to, you know, I don't have to change my ways because the person leading the country has, has no sense of wanting to do that. So, Thomas, what's driving all this? Is it, is it economics? Is it politics? Or is it the societal issue, sociology? No, I think it is completely societal. Um, I just think that it was a political election and I, election, and I think it's people from a, from a moral standpoint, more so than political saying, oh, I'm going to vote for, I'm going to vote Trump out of office. I don't think it was politics. And, I, and I, I'm not even saying that it's, it was a, a, um, a culmination of, of the entire country getting, getting behind each other and saying, we are collectively going to vote this man out of office. But I do think though, that from a societal standpoint where, like you mentioned with George Floyd, the whole thing, it was, I think a lot of people, white people, frankly, having that light go on in their head that, oh my God, this can't, how does something like this happen in my country? And that's a moral thing. And I think that's from a societal standpoint. So is where I'm coming from with me saying that the election was a culmination. I think from people morally saying, okay, now I see, I didn't know this before, but now I see what black folks have been talking about Oh, and this person who was in the White House has been essentially enabling the white nationalism that, in essence, led to George Floyd being murdered. And not just him, but the years of systemic racism that have plagued this country. I think that was a symbolic way to say, all right, from a moral standpoint, I can't, we can't let this person run the country. And so, no, I don't think it was politics. And I think it was more so from a moral standpoint. And that, again, that's not even to say looking forward that mm-hmm. now we're kumbaya and everything has changed. Yeah. Like what happened after pre- President Obama was elected and we all of a sudden were supposedly in this quote unquote post-racial society, which is a complete yeah. flaw in my perspective. I don't think now we're now going to go back to, all right, now that Trump is gone, now from a moral com- standpoint as a country, it's kumbaya. Yeah. Uh, because all those issues that you raised are, are still issues um, in this country, and it's going to take a lot longer than the next four years or however long to fix them. Mm-hmm. But I just think that, that that election, I think, for a lot of people who at this, as the term that has been used lately is the racial reckoning, yeah, that yeah. was a way for them to exercise their demons in a sense. Back in the summer in Los Angeles and in Seattle and in Portland and, of course, in Minneapolis, here in Washington and a couple of other places, the temperature got pretty high and there was a lot of tension and uh, a lot of activity on the streets. Things are usually pretty laid back in California, so I'm just wondering what the temperature is right now in Los Angeles. That's a good question. I think out here, like you said, you things are a little more laid back in L.A. and the protests have died down. Of course, the pandemic being what it is and the fact that it's gotten worse out here in in Southern California specifically, um, I think is still top of mind. But when it comes to um, issues that, that were raised during the summer, and this, again, I mentioned the, the racial reckoning, um, that was the, the term that was used over the summer. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if, if it's really achieved the, if we've achieved the, the really, like I said, gra- groundbreaking change that we want to see. 
I hate to say that some of it may have been performative, yeah. but it might have been because it's, you know, it's, it's what's happening at the moment. And a lot of times we are prisoners of the moment. Um, but I don't know that we have actually gotten the progress in that everyone thought would happen and the transformation I think that folks thought would happen. Um, because shortly after that, we saw Jacob Blake. Yeah. Happen. Um, and he, his shooting didn't gain or didn't get the attention or, or didn't get people as upset as George Floyd, which has always been my question after George Floyd is, I st- and I still haven't got the answer is, is for those and specifically white folks who didn't see the racism, systemic racism that was happening, what made George Floyd different? Because like I said, Jacob Blake happened shortly after, and it's almost a footnote. Yeah. Um, really, what's the change that we've really seen? I don't know. That's Thomas Warren. Now for some more reflections. My name is Lily Quiroz, and I'm a Mexican-American living in Washington, D.C. When I first saw the video and murder of George Floyd, I was angry and sad. And what I'm doing now is educating myself and my family so that the system we live in doesn't treat people unfairly and so that they don't have to continue living in fear. My name is Kevin Stanfield, um, a black man born and raised in Washington, D.C. I think that the fact that I grew up in a predominantly black environment helped to give me a, a firm foundation that enabled me to deal with the world the way it is. And um, all I want out of society is I want people to hear what I'm saying as loudly as they see the color of my skin. My name is Susie Askew. I am a Korean American living in Tacoma, Washington. I am the product of the U.S. military overseas. My biological father was an Ecuadorian immigrant serving in the U.S. Air Force stationed in Korea. My stepfather, who brought my family to the U.S., is African-American from Memphis. He was the youngest of 12 children, with the military being his most viable option to make a better life for himself. My mother, who raised two biracial children in the U.S. as a single working mom, struggled through language barriers so that I could become a school administrator and my younger brother a police officer. Navigating American life with the intersection of all these identities can be difficult. I often feel that white America struggles to understand how personal lived experiences intersect with the political and the systemic. My name is Michael Edwards. I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. I am white, and I grew up in a small southern town about an hour's drive east of Raleigh. I am 72, and I recognize the need for change is long overdue in addressing the racism issue. I recall the words of Huey Newton spoken in the 1960s, if you're not part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. I want to be part of the solution that allows us to truly become one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And Mike Edwards is our second interview for today. And Mike, we want to ask you, has anything changed? 
I would say that for the most part, I think we're at a crossroads. And the reason I say that, so much attention has been given to two overwhelming things. First, the COVID-19 landscape and its resurgence. And second, uh, the political landscape at the national, state, and local levels. I mean, the the constant bombardment and allegations regarding the balloting process and so forth has really taken our attention away. Uh, last summer, I think we did give much greater concentration to uh, racial issues, especially the concepts of systemic racism and what that means. I don't hear as much about that now. And I find myself grappling with, uh, for example, on a daily basis, this COVID thing and what it's doing here in North Carolina, where I live. So from my standpoint, just as an observer, I would say the crossroads is there and we probably need to refocus. And I think the possibility of that is coming, but I don't know that it's underway at this point. Do you get the sense that people um, were tired of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the social justice uh, movement, uh, the racial uh, equality movement that uh, was re-energized after George Floyd's death? I think more than anything, what I have observed, and this is after spending years in the, in the business and, and uh, covering events and so forth, a lot of attention is given social media. Let me start there. And social media is such a new platform for many of us. We take it for granted, I think, particularly those under the age of 35. It's just a commonplace part of their daily lifestyle. For us older folks, and I'm in my 70s, I had to kind of learn it and use it. And I only use it to, to, to some degree. I, I do not rely on it per se as my main way of communicating. I still prefer face-to-face, -face, sit down and have a chat. Whereas a lot of people will text a uh, case in point, my two daughters, great gals in their thirties. But let me tell you, they, I get a better response if dad can take his thumbs and try to text a message to get a reply than trying just to get a simple phone call to say hi. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that same kind of thing goes on. I think we're dealing with a dynamic here that is very difficult from the communicating standpoint. And by that, I mean, very simply, you do have a gap. Uh, the older generation likes to communicate in a certain way and is more responsive, uh, no matter what the issue is, and because it's how you do it as much as anything. So I don't think the problem is so much dealing with it and addressing systemic. I don't think you'll get a whole lot of backlash on that. I think the key is how do we address that? Mm -hmm. And do we have those venues to make that happen? And uh, I'm not sure that doing it electronically is necessarily the best way to start that. Well, then the, the last thing I'll ask you is, do you think that the U.S. has actually made any progress uh, since then? Um, I heard what you said early on. You say we're at a crossroads, but has there any measurable has any measurable progress on any front of this been made? Interestingly enough, let me just utilize uh, the community where I live as an example. Uh, we live in the Triangle of North Carolina, which includes the capital city of Raleigh, right. uh, Dur Durham, which is the home of Duke University, and Chapel Hill, which is the home of the University of North Carolina, NC State, of course, home in Raleigh. So you got three key university communities as a part of this integral community we call the Triangle. Right. We, we have had, on average, a shooting every day. Uh, 
for weeks now uh, mm-hmm. in one of those communities or in all of those communities on a given day. I mean, it leads the newscast half the time. Uh, sometimes it seems to be racially motivated. Sometimes it's within a given community, uh, not necessarily racial in nature. And so I bring that up as kind of the violence issue, per se. That in itself is worrisome to a lot of people, the violence and the use of guns and shootings. And so that in and of itself is an issue altogether that gets in the news every day, it seems like. It doesn't matter how you receive that news, whether word of mouth or television or radio, et cetera, or print, for example. It's still happening. And so that's one issue, uh, just addressing that alone. Now, can we relate that going back to the George Floyd thing and so forth? I do see, for example, in our community, police departments making a very concerted effort to deal with this. They're having uh, support meetings, town halls and things like that. And those have been reported and we're getting different viewpoints on that. But when I uh, observe the coverage of this uh, from a journalistic standpoint, I do see kind of the same faces talking and uh, maybe the same groups espousing their points of view, but I don't see a whole lot of new faces per se. Uh, so I don't know how active this is being addressed actively is this is being addressed. It is being addressed, but I don't know how to measure that, that mm-hmm. to answer your question uh, briefly, I, I'm not sure. How do we measure that? Mm-hmm. I think uh, you have to kind of keep moving forward, be prepared to talk about it. And I think the key going back to the earlier part of your series is we have to start by listening, listening to what others have to say, Uh, looking at ourselves, how do I respond to this? How do I feel about this? And working through that. And so all of that has to come to play. And I think we're still in the early stages of all that, if I had to make an assessment. Mm -hmm. Well, Mike Edwards, Raleigh, North Carolina. Thank you. Anytime, JJ. And keep up with the great work, man. You guys are doing a super job. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. So that's what people say, Chris. That's what they think. So I'd like to ask you to start this off between you and me. Have you personally seen anything that gives you any idea that things have actually, that the needle has moved since the George Floyd situation, since we started this? I have a story, um, if you have time for it here. Yes. Um, It happened in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, there is a black guy living in a um, upscale, predominantly white community. And uh, there's a community association, their homeowners association that sets rules. He noticed that most of his neighbors or many of his neighbors had blue lives matter flags flying blue lives matter. So he put up a black lives matter banner. And he immediately got something from the homeowners association that said, yeah, you got to take that down. We don't allow political um, banners to be flown in our community. And he responded, well, if black lives is political, so is blue lives. And they thought about it for a while and they rescinded the order to take it down. Now, would that have happened a year ago? I don't know. But to me, that was a sign of progress because I think that they thought about it and they thought, you know what? This guy's right. 
So to me, that's a little sign of progress. That is a great little sign of progress. And, you know, one of the things that I have been looking at, as you mentioned something like that, people taking a look at nuances and also taking a look at um, now compared to a year ago or even five years ago. You and I have talked about this on several occasions about how the in- the incremental change sometimes gets lost um, because of new things popping yeah. up, different yeah. situations coming up that seem to overshadow the, 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 the improvement. But one thing that really troubles me right now, and I just need to bring this up, I believe that there are people that are waiting right now for all of us to just drop this and go back to the way things were. I mean, I see some evidence of it in, in some of the language that I see in, in some, some, some publications and in, in, on some television networks, on, certainly on social media. But I get the, get the feeling that some people are, are kind of waiting for this to subside. But I don't think that's going to happen. And one of the reasons why I don't think it's going to happen is people like Mia Martinez. It's people like Thomas Warren. It's people like the folks that have, that have, that have, that have sent us their reflections. Sue Ann Lee, Angelie Chung. You know, I just don't think this is going to happen. I think this is going to be full speed ahead for a while. People maybe have taken a break right now uh, because of so many other things that are going on. But I don't think this is this is not going to go back to the way it used to be. Yeah. And I see some proof of that. We're going to hear at a future podcast. Um, A number of American banks, big American banks, some of the biggest in the country have started a program in which they are now easing the terms of lending to black owned businesses on purpose with the idea that we have to do something to level the playing field. We have to do something to make it easier to close the economic gap between whites and blacks in America. That's going to be coming up in a future podcast, but that's something that's not going to go away. You're not going to see Citibank suddenly say, yeah, never mind. We're not going to do that. I think that's here to stay. And it started as a direct result of George Floyd, just about the same time that you and I decided started to doing and we started to do this podcast are you sure that that won't go away i mean because banks have done noble things in the past but then somehow because of some situation found a back door am i sure i can't promise <laughs> what do i think i think it's not going away i think there has been a reckoning an awakening in america and i think it's here to stay yeah uh it may get a little diluted from time to time as we get distracted by things along the road to progress uh just what you're talking about uh pandemic for example but i think that we have made a generational shift yes mm-hmm. i firmly believe that so I've got one thing I'd like to ask you about. This just happened today. Today is the 2nd of December, 2020. Former President Barack Obama said a little while ago, and you may actually, <laughs> you may actually uh, get some see I told you so out of this, but he said a little while ago, um, the people that are using, the activists that are using the defund the police slogan need to stop it. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason for it is because of the fact that it may, in his in his words, well, in his mind, he believes that it's it's not helpful. What do you think? 
Yeah, well, I, I think let's talk about that guy in Jacksonville. I don't see a conflict between Blue Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter, if you think about it, because I believe both matter. I am thankful for the police who go out and put their lives on the line for us every single day. I'm not grateful for the, the people who abuse their power and do things that they know they shouldn't do and that are morally reprehensible. But for the most part, I'm thankful for the blue lives that are out there on the line for us. And I believe Black Lives Matter. I don't think the two are opposed to each other. So in in the regard, if, if that makes me uh, agree with President Obama, then so be it. But I, I don't I don't necessarily see a conflict between the two. And I do think, yes, the idea of saying defund the police is not a winner. It just <laughs> isn't a winner. I, I understand you and I talked about this many times. It, it has various meanings. But <laughs> when you put it as defund the police, you're going to lose about 75% of the country almost immediately. Yeah, perception is almost everything, and the optics right. of this is just not good. And I said that from the beginning, that I don't think these people wanted to actually defund the police. They were using it as a slogan to attract attention. Well, the attention is there, but now it may be become a bit confusing to continue to use this slogan because people are going to say, you are simply not living in the real world. You're simply not... Uh, you really don't expect this to happen, and you can't expect anything good to happen by police departments being all across the country, across the board, being defunded totally. I think it, it's it's still may have some merit as an idea, but as, as President Obama said, you have to be careful how you use it. Well, listen, he won two landslide elections and he was very careful in the words that he chose and the way he said things. That's what makes him a yeah. he made him a, a terrific candidate, one of the one of the best presidential candidates. I'm not talking about his policies. I'm not judging him on anything other than as a campaigner. He was incredibly difficult to beat because he was a great orator, is a great orator, and because he knew the right words to say to make people feel comfortable with him and his ideas. Not many people have that gift, and he does. And so I, I, I tend to listen to guys that are like him. I mean, Ronald Reagan had that gift, and, um, and Barack Obama has that gift, and there are not a whole lot of others in between. To some extent, John McCain had that gift. But you don't – not all politicians are like that. I mean, incoming President Biden is not a great orator. Donald Trump could get a lot of attention, but there wasn't a lot of substance to his speech. It was just, uh, you know, fiery rhetoric. But, um, I, you know, I, I think one would be foolish to ignore mm -hmm. what Barack Obama says, having won the presidency twice. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. I'm Chris Corr, and I'm white. And this is Colors. And a reminder, we love to hear from you. So if you have any suggestions for guests or topics you'd like to hear us talk about on this podcast, if you have any criticisms and you say, you know, you guys could do something better, please let us know. We're, we're, we're wide open. What we want to do is do what you think needs to be done. So please email us at thecolorspodcast at gmail.com. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. One of network television's best-known personalities opens up about a very ugly string of racial slurs in public. I was headed back to Atlanta, so I was walking through the airport, and the first thing that happened was an older gentleman, as I was walking past him, stopped, looked at me, took off his mask, and said to me, Ni hao, ching chong. And as bad as that one was... 
that's not it. As CNN's Amara Walker walked through Louis Armstrong Airport in New Orleans, there were more within a span of one hour. Listen, to, to be honest, I haven't gotten these kinds of ignorant, hateful remarks in years. And the fact that it happened to me three times in one day, we're in an environment where people feel like it's okay to be vocal about their racist views. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. Time to go again, and we want to say thank you to Hillary Howard, Mike Chikaitis, Rose Varner Gaskins, Melissa Howell, Christian Bartolin, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Brittany Davis, Mike Goldrick, Ryan Williams, Andrea Brown Taylor. Yes, we see all of you Twitter followers, and we thank you too. Dimitri Sotis as well, and all the people who've sent us their reflections on race. And all the folks that don't think it's robbery to give color some media love, we thank you. And of course, for the music, we thank Jesse Gallagher and Cosmic. And just remember, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.